Hello, 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 and welcome to episode four of the School to the Pool podcast. Now, as I'm sure that many of you are well aware, there was not a podcast last week. Well, last week we had Columbus Day break, and so the recording schedule took a bit of a hit because of that. I'll try my best, of course, to to keep be as consistent as possible as I can by having to podcast once a week. So please forgive me on that, but the good thing is, you know what? That means there's been two weeks for me to come up with new topics, ideas, and to flush them out so I can provide them to you. Okay? Good. And without any further ado, let's get this thing back in the groove with today's podcast. And the first topic for today relates to again how school and classes are structured which is a topic that will be touched on repeatedly through different angles and so in my computer technology class we watched a documentary forgive me for not remembering the name but what it was about it's from like early 2010s like 2010 i believe it's about the school in the san diego public school district and the school is remarkably different compared to public schools. For example, the schedule is completely different. Whereas in a regular school, you would have like X amount of classes, like like say like seven to nine or whatever classes a day in like say like whatever period block. In that school, how it's set up is that they instead have it as you take two classes the entire day like big this huge chunk of time like for example it was like it was like a physics and a social studies it was a humanities and a chemistry class and that's all it is the entire year and your final grade is like the exhibition like a big final physical manifestation of whatever idea that is combines two classes and so, and the documentary makes it seem as though it works. I'm sure that it does do a good job to keep kids interested, which is the main point of the documentary. And it's how traditional schooling system fails to interest kids because of their roots that the education system has, which, which is completely, completely valid, right? But as a student myself, and I look at that setup, I personally, I I can't imagine transitioning to that school because it's not like you go from like elementary through middle school to high school and that's like the system you've been in. No, you've came, you're transitioning from like the traditional middle school to the high school. And, and so the biggest thing to me is just the sheer amount of knowledge and content that you'll be missing. After all, you're only taking two classes the entire year. Two content areas. And regardless of how vast that content area is, you're still only getting two circles of information compared to however more you would get at public school. Say what you will about like the quality of it or like if it's meaningful or any of that. If the simple thing is, you are getting less information. 
No. And to get to me, I watched that documentary, and I simply couldn't imagine going to a school like that. Like I simply, I simply could not, because it's just far too different than what I grew up with, and so maybe this is just me being complacent or whatever. But I, I can't. Previously mentioned was the content area, and just and how much less you're getting, but also how teachers in that in the school. This might be. Okay, so I will specify that my previous point of co- of content is a point that I believe is valid against these like different types of schools. But I guess something that can be focused on this school part specifically is how teachers are, which is teachers are on one year contracts. And so to me, to simply to convert this to a sports analogy, which is something I enjoy doing. It is that just like just like how athletes want to get stability, like a long-term contract, so they, they don't have to worry about getting injured or have to have like one bad series, one bad season. The same exact thing applies to teachers. Just like a season of a, any sport, NFL, MLB, NBA, MLS, anything like that, NHL, even PGA. Even the marching band, if you consider it a sport, they all have a season, just as the season for a teacher is a school year. Not the entire year, but it's a, a decent chunk of it, right? And we already know that teachers are some of the most underpaid, overstressed, underappreciated careers and people out there. And by having this one year system, to frankly put far more pressure on a teacher to then skew results or not teach their kids as well. And the documentary sort of says that teachers want to work in this system because of the freedom that they have. But again, that ties in then what if teachers then, because people are teachers and teachers are people. And people naturally have different like biases and interests. And so therefore, these teachers have different biases and interests, which means that depending on the complete luck of the draw that whatever student gets, they're going to be focused by well, one teacher, well, two teachers specifically, the entire year. And that pretty much means that one out of their four years will be stuck with like two subjects. And if we extrapolate this to an entire high school, Two teachers, an entire year, four years of high school. Eight teachers, your entire high school career. Like, just thinking about that, like, geez, your your pool for college recommendation letters dwindles. Continuing on, you have two classes per year. Extrapolate that. You only have eight entire high school. Public school, let's, let's say eight, which is what it is at my school. 8 times 4 is 32. 8 times 4, 32. 32 teachers, 32 courses. Now, people may say, geez, you know, 
just learning about all of this information, X, Y, and Z, isn't helpful. And like, shouldn't it be better for kids to, to specify? But I counter with this. Eight topics, eight subjects, are simply not enough to provide kids a, a baseline to work from. School is a, essentially a universal thing in the United States. Regardless of where you are in the U.S., you go to school. The purpose of school in today's modern era should be to provide kids with a baseline of knowledge, information, and skills to work from. Now, public schools by no means necessarily reach the standard, but that standard nevertheless should exist. And a school like the one in San Diego, to me, is in clear, blatant violation of that. I mean, so only eight topics. I'm not even going to call them subjects. They're like small snippets. And then you leave it completely unconnected. Now, when you go to that real-life project, you can tie it into different things. But at the end of the day, it's up to the student. The teacher's not going to tell kids, oh, you should connect X to Z. We draw that line for them. No, because, and so, and if the student has no idea that topic Z exists, then why would they ever connect X to Z when they can just simply do it to Y, which could be for these to be their second class that they take in the, in the entire year. For all, these kids are in high school, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. Elementary and middle school arguably didn't provide them with enough ben of a benchmark of information to ensure that they can functionally act in an intelligent and informed manner in, in high school and beyond. It simply doesn't. And what makes this more, uh, not discouraging, but uh, a bit more, uh, something that slows down this, this move, is a sheer fact of how do you transition to this? I've, the documentary does a good job of showing just how, like, how this transition could be difficult and for kids, as they as it could be, as it should be, because of how different it is. But can you imagine if this suddenly becomes the national benchmark? After all, you have to convert every school to this system. And just the system wouldn't be able to handle it. And again, the sheer fact that these schools exist is also a form of inequity in and of itself. Regardless of... Now, I'm not saying if it's inequitable to the kids who go to this new style of school or to the kids who go to traditional schools or charter schools or private schools or homeschool, simply because I'm not as well-read enough and have, don't have the statistics to talk about it. Yet, here it is. And it's something that is happening to students around the country as what type of school they go to is split up and divvied. And it creates going to create imbalance. You have all of these different types of schooling. And naturally, then, the schooling that kids receive is going to vary in quality and effectiveness. Frankly, I'm not here to provide an answer as to what type of schooling is the best. What I am here to say is that I have significant doubts about this new, like, free-form style of teaching that one school in San Diego has. That's just me. And it's not my school. But also, I've never been there. 
So, but either way, I think that we all have a vested interest in ensuring that students have the best and most efficient education that we can provide. And whatever option is the best is one that we should work to transition to. Yeah. If any of you guys have any information, reading, or sources that I can look at, please let me know. Email me, because I would love to be more well-read on this topic. At the end of the day, school is school, and school is important. And so as a junior in high school, something that has become a part of my life is good old online driving uh, on, online driving course and i don't know like it's simple sometimes i just don't like mem- like remembering all of the tedious little facts for pen dot and like the fact that like how much feet specifically i should set up those like emergency flares or like the fact there are seven zones around the car but I learn it, I pass the quiz, I move on. And again, this is pretty sure a universal thing that all kids face. I mean, the United States does not have a robust enough public transportation system. So it's essentially a car is a necessity in the good old US of A. And I just gotta point out. Don't worry, guys, if this is going to be a bit of a shorter topic run. There's a bonus topic about something that is important to me. But to me, when it comes to driving, there's something about, especially something that's disindependent based. And maybe just my skepticism, since I've never like had a, like a really independent schooling in my educational career so far. Maybe, maybe college will be different. Probably not. But... Trusting students to follow this course properly and to pay attention and like read up on the facts and pass the final exam. Simply unrealistic in my opinion. I mean, for example, we have benchmarks that we need to reach. One was getting to 30%. And so you know what everybody did? Because we were all we all well, none of us are necessarily the smartest. We all do have a some sort of collective mind. We all realize that we just keep it in the background, hit it 30%. And so, you know, the deadline passed. We're all like, huzzah, high fives. No one's taking lunch money. It's good. No kumbaya circles form, but it's functional. But you know what happens? Email comes out. Kaboom. You need to be 30% done through the chapters as well. And then it's like, ooh, ah, geez, we didn't realize that. And so every one of us got pranked. Well, not every one of us. Some of us continue to work through it. But a decent chunk of kids got pranked that way. But ultimately, I'm forced to ask, is it really their fault? Because you never really made it explicit like that was a criteria. You never made it clear that we had no until November 15 to get the entire thing done, 30 hours in it done. And so this, to me, again, leads into rule that students, I think, are motivated to do activities that they want to do. Or even if they don't want to do the activity. But if you lay out the requirement, what's expected, and the tools to do it, students will do it.
I think that's a teaching concept that we could all remember and use as we try to instruct not only students, but really anybody. Provide them with the knowledge, or the deadline and requirements, and give them the tools. And I bet you nine times out of ten, the person will rise to the occasion and do it. In gym class, we got to play the beautiful game, soccer or football, whichever one you prefer. And so, because it was rainy outside, we got to play in a good old gym. We did like some weird alley soccer, whatever. We're like this. We split up by gender. So, and so if you're kicking the sidelines, whoever is on that side will, can then throw it in, whatever. And so, good routine possession. And so, that's what we did. You know, I think that I did pretty good. I technically committed to handballs because the ball hit my shoulder. I've completely forgot that there's a difference between like switching of possession handball and yellow card handball. Uh, as a quick tidbit, so handball in any sense is if the ball hits your arm or your shoulder in a way that and just that's just handball in general. That's not necessarily a yellow card, but most times it's a transition, it's a change of possession. Intentional handball is when your arm or hand or whatever is raised in an intentional or controllable way to disrupt the ball. So, quick tidbit. Anyway, so we're playing this this game. And we're doing it. And it's going back and forth, right? Because it's just like, it, it pretty much it all devolves at the beginning, at least. It was just a huge blob, right? Everybody running up and back, up and down the court. Or... They get out of court because in age, you know. But you know, eventually, after the pandemonium, after we switched groups, and so then when we came back out, my team at least sort of set into a into a strategy, which was, you know, set up. We actually sort of came up with a formation. Now it's not like we and we never huddled up and said we're going to do X, Y, and Z. We're not going to run like four, two, three, one. We never designate who's going to like be a defender, who's going to be a forward, who's going to be a striker, who's going to be goalie. But what, what naturally happened is as when you have competitive kids, you have some semblance of how things work. And after all, most sports, especially team sports that involve a ball, do have some core certain principles. Basketball and soccer have many similar principles, particularly when it comes to player movement and transition. And so we actually set up we actually had four of us like stood back and actually acted as a back line. We moved up to now. We provide push up and provide support when needed to. Like, I think that we can all agree that that's for having only like twenty five minutes, twenty not even twenty five, twenty minutes to play. And like n- none of us are like soccer players or soccer coaches per se. Like intently follow soccer. Well, I, I do intently follow soccer, and maybe I'll do a quick segment on that later, but. None of us having like any real experience, but yet we as a collective divulged into like a semblance of a, of a smart tactic in the short amount of time that we had without any teacher guidance, without any, no input at all. But looking back on it, there was a simple 
adjustment that we could have done that would have made us so much more effective, which was namely, if because people on the sideline could throw in the ball, if whenever the ball is in a risky spot, why don't we just kick it to our sideline and regain possession and then set up a set piece or throw in and take it from there? I mean, easy, right? Makes perfect sense, except for one thing. We know no team did that at all in our game. I mean, it's because whatever second unit was, like, not the most engaged group of kids, but this was a viable, this should have been a viable tactic, but it never came about. Again, a few of us mentioned there was no teacher intervention from the gym teachers, and so we left our own devices. And, but just think about how much more interesting and how much more engagement could have, all the kids could have had, not only those of us who were on the field slash court, but those on the silence. If we were told about this strategy, this tactic, and what happens in gym class is just as applicable to the classroom. Too often, teachers like to do like to do independent guided learning, right? Where you just like give kids series of like tasks to accomplish, and you set them to their own devices. While the premise is good, and it certainly arguably beats simply taking notes on lectures, it can lead to frustration, especially if some kids like struggle, or it leads into simply piggybacking off the coattails of the kid who does know what's going on. And so then they, no one's really picking up on it, which is literally us doing. And like while there may be some breakthroughs, such as when we actually played some people back, you're never getting like the way to truly maximize the game or your knowledge, which would have been kicking it to the sideline and regaining possession because we're playing that way. It says in classroom. And why did we not get that? Because the teachers did not provide us with the just that baseline knowledge and leave it to the rest of us to work off it. Just, just so the classroom should be where teachers shouldn't simply toss kids into the ocean and expect them to to pick up on what's going on. No, teachers should provide the baseline of the skill set, and from that point on, then expand upon it. And then give the kids like real world applications or ideas or writing prompts or whatever and let the kids go with it and run with it and work with their peers. Teachers should be as hand off as uh, as hands off as possible. Go grab a latte, go to the break room, go find something, go grade some papers, go talk to your boss. Right? But don't do any of that before you actually ex- provide a basic context to what's going on. So much of what I talk about is how school doesn't work. For kids well and how it can be annoying and stuff. I feel like if, when annoyance comes from frustration, I think everybody wants to learn. After all, it's a universally admired trait. You know, why do people not like to? Because it's frustrating and it makes it annoying. But if you provide this basic context so everyone can at least get a baseline, as I referenced that wonderful word again, and people can then work on, because then it's logical. It's the natural progression. The, the natural progression of a pencil would be the pen. It's not a huge leap. It's still a writing utensil. But if all you start out with is a, is a feather from a goose, you don't have anywhere to go. 
how are you supposed to get to the pencil or the pen if all you have is that part of a goose? That's the dilemma that many teachers face, and frankly, they should correct as soon as possible for their next class. Well, then this is a bonus topic because this week there's something interesting that popped up. And it was the United Nations Climate Report. And essentially it says that we need to make drastic changes to our carbon emissions by 2030. Or else, like, I really like 2.5 to 3 degrees Celsius the Earth's climate will increase by, and just the sheer impacts of it. Now, I'm not going to get into like the arguments and all that because that's not something that needs to be argued at this point. But as a student who's going to grow up into the 2030 deadline and have to live with the impact of climate change. I'm, at first glance, I feel very, I feel very just, I don't know what to feel, right? Because like, it's such a big thing. It's climate change, global scale. It's not just like my school, my family, my friends, right? Or like school districts, if you want to go big. It's not so much bigger. It is every school district in the United States. Every school district in the world is going to have to deal with these problems. Some people more so than others, but regardless, we'll face it. And so as I continue to think about it more, I feel, I feel scared. I feel fearful. I feel immense amounts of trepidation. I can only imagine how much my life will change. I imagine about how like schools will be different, how maybe a school day will be completely be held at different times because of things, or how maybe schools would be so much larger because of migration inland. I'm like, I'm worried about that. But then I realized that I'll be out of school at that point. After all, I'll graduate in 2020, so I'll have 10 years. But then that makes me even, perhaps my fear still exists, and as I'll be a young adult when these things happen, after all. I'll be 28 when, like, full impacts. But then maybe my fear and trepidation, it turns to anger. It turns into frustration. It turns into disdain for the people and the policies and the ideas and the greed that has allowed a problem like this to persist for so long. The inaction and inability of people to start taking change and and. I look at things like the Paris Accords, the Paris Agreement, and how it's essentially merely lip service, and how 2030 is coming up closer every day that passes, every time I go to bed, and how I'm going to face real impacts, and how it's going to impact my life, and the life of my family, and the life of my friends, and the life of people around me, and the life of people I don't even know, but yet as a, because I'm a person who can empathize, I feel for those people. And I'm angry at the people who are going to make every one of those people have to deal with a new problem and suffer. 
Because it really seems like well, it inevitably will. I, that's that anger. Something that, frankly, all of us should feel. Who are going to have to live through the consequences? We will not simply be able to, as an older generation, simply pass on a torch and fade out in a good goodbye as the sun goes down. No, we will have to live, live through it, live through the storm. We will not be able to evacuate our ways, our way out of this ourselves. But as I continue to think about this more, and I continue to to process, you know, the fear and trepidation, the the incredulousness and the anger, the frustration and disdain. I feel something else. I feel I feel not hope. For that is not only a four-letter word, but also something that is too positive for us. No, I feel instead of hope, I feel resoluteness. I feel solemnness and I feel confident, honestly. I truly do feel that way. Because while I may not want this problem, while I may not have directly contributed to this problem, I can't imagine anybody else but me and my friends and my family and the people that I know and the people that I don't know but who live on this planet and you're going to have to live through this and deal with the problems. And I simply wouldn't want anybody else to have to rise up and meet this problem. I feel like I am. I feel like that I am and we are the most qualified to handle this situation. Call it arrogance. Call it hubris. Call it flamboyance. Call it naivete. But frankly, what more do we have? It's about this emotion of confidence and Resoluteness is surely better than no feeling at all, anger, or despair. As the ocean levels rise and mosquitoes continue to increase their range, and natural disasters all over take lives and ruin lives and change lives, I think that we will stand up to it. And we will fight against it because we simply don't have a choice. But also, I feel like my generation will do the best job against us. I wouldn't trust any any other generation to handle the problems that we will have to face. This is probably going to be Climate change is going to be one of the greatest hurdles to to people, to to the human species. But I feel confident in I. I feel confident in my fellow citizens. I feel confident in my fellow denizens of this wonderful green, blue, white, yellow planet that we live on. As a five-letter word, I wouldn't have it any different way. I may have my juice different, I may have my video game set up different, I may have my grades different, but I wouldn't have it any different the time that I'm going to live in and the challenges that I'm going to face. Not because I want these challenges, not because I want to deal with the consequences, but because I simply cannot imagine 
trying to run away from this and die to something or suffer because of something that's not even a person. I know that I'm going to to do my hardest to deal with this climate, the changing climate. And I feel very confident and I believe that my peers will do the same. Alrighty, guys, thank you for listening to this episode of School to the Pool podcast, for getting through all of that. Hopefully, you got some good insights, takeaways, and all of that good stuff. I'm going to start transitioning this conclusion section to being a quick tidbit of things that I have, not songs like sports, politics, whatever. And so what? U.S. national soccer team lost 4-2 to Columbia, Columbia but hey, when Hamas Rodriguez can curl that ball in that way, maybe we shouldn't have won that game. But a U.S. men's national team is building 2022. Right, don't need make it. Don't need to go far. But 2026, when it's in our home turf, we'd better have a viable team, and I feel pretty good that we will. Moving on to the NFL, Eagles beat Giants decisively. Hey, Eagles did what good teams do: you beat bad teams. Got stuff to being a team that wins games in the first place, but it's also what good teams do. And it should be just a building block and build some confidence in the guys. Politics. Voting deadline for many states was just passed on October 10th. But hey, you know what? Still check your state. Go, go ahead and vote. Your vote matters. And for all like in Virginia, there was an election that was decided by only one vote. Please register. It's the least you can do. If you, can, if you missed the deadline and you can't vote, why don't you just donate like a small amount? $5.00. To a campaign that you believe in. Corporate money can spend money. Being companies will spend money. Why not you? Aren't you just as much? Aren't you worth just as much as these huge faceless conglomerates? I believe you are. Anyway, guys, that's going to wrap it up for this week. Thank you for listening. Be safe. And let's make a difference.